My name is Eric Hundley, and this is Unstructured, where we have dynamic and formal conversations with some amazing people. Today, we're joined by Cindy Otis. Now, this is exciting because Cindy is my first CIA analyst. I've had a CIA security officer, a CIA operations officer, a CIA targeting... I don't know if she's a targeting officer or targeting analyst, but Cindy, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. How are you, Eric? All right. Now, first question I'd like to ask, because I've had 12 FBI agents on, and one thing I really enjoy is that painting you with the label CIA officer, I guess you're not an agent, you're an officer, mm -hmm. uh, or painting an FBI agent with FBI agent, we all have our perceptions. But out of the 12 FBI agents, I had 12 different jobs. So can you tell me about being a CIA analyst and what that is? Sure. So um, so being an analyst, um, you are broken out into sort of different skill areas. So mm -hmm. analyst is sort of the overarching term, but there are multiple different kinds of analysts. Um, so you could focus on political issues, economic, um, military slash security issues, um, leadership issues or targeting. Um, and I spent the, the vast majority of my career um, as a military and security analyst um, before going on to some other roles. But um, the job essentially is, you know, it's a pretty exciting one. I think, um, you know, we're not typically represented in, in movies and that's because it tends to be, you know, sort of the job where you're sitting behind a desk for most of it, um, reading a lot of information, reading all of the intelligence that's coming in, um, and trying to, you know, based on your skills, your language expertise, um, your familiarity with different regions, essentially sort through very quickly moving events in particular regions um, and analyze those and then, you know, provide U.S. policymakers either in written or in briefing form. Um, your assessment on those events, sort of what's happening, why it's happening, where it's likely to go next, sort of how does it impact, you know, the United States and our interests. So it's, a, I mean, it's a very fascinating job, um, not the kind where you're, you know, uh, even remotely like James Bond, but, um, <laughs> but still a very fascinating job. Well, that's awesome. I actually had FBI agent Ken Lanning on, and he worked in the behavioral science unit and, you know, like um, Silence of the Lambs, and all, <laughs> all of that. And as he put it, I think on his 18th year or 20th year, no, I think it was his 20th year, he got an award and it was a telephone <laughs> statue sent to him. It. Because, uh, you know, we have this impression that they run around and they solve the cases themselves. And really what they do is they answer the phone and they go, hmm. Okay, what are they like? What's tell me about the case? Send me some documentation. And they talk on the phone all day long. So mm -hmm. I, I love the fact that there's a misperception. Is that something you saw too? Like before you went into the CIA, what did you think it would be like? I mean, I, you know, I have no shame in admitting that the first time I thought as a child, you know, this might be a field I'd like to go into was when my dad showed me my very first James Bond film. Um, I loved James Bond films growing up. They're my dad's things. We would watch them together. Um, and so I did have a little bit of a, you know, a perception that life was sort of going to be like that. Um, and, uh, you know, I mean, to be fair, um, so I, I would sometimes help with um, uh, agency recruitment efforts that is recruiting people to come in and, and work for the agency, not asset recruitment. 
Um, and the number one question I would get, um, you know, when I was doing uh, that work from from interested folks was, you know, is it really like James Bond movies? Um, and, you know, to be fair, there were there were points, there were times when um, I wasn't at the desk, I wasn't, you know, sort of elbow deep in information, I was actually, you know, um, out doing things or participating in, in very um, interesting high level meetings. Um, I was a, a briefer um, at the White House for for a while, and there were these moments where it struck me that okay, there are elements of sort of the James Bond or um, uh, you know sort of more of that sort of spy thriller um, uh, idea to this job. Um, you forget about it because most of the time, again, like you are behind a desk, but there are those moments where you're like, okay, like this is actually a little bit on the James Bond side, and it's really cool. That's awesome. Now I'm going to pivot right into the main subject of fake news, things like that. Now, previous guest, Sarah Carlson actually introduced us and I'm Mm -hmm. very thankful for it. I see a parallel with you and her though, that is very interesting because you had brought up, I don't know if it was in your book or an interview that you spend a lot of time looking at social media. Mm -hmm. And I was kind of shocked that she spent many of her days in Libya, looking at social media to get an idea of the ground truth. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit and and how social media is used? I mean, it's obviously very public information, so you should be free to speak more. Yeah, I mean, you know, one of the one of the um, areas of of intelligence collection is open source intelligence, and that includes you know everything from um, government documents that a government makes pop, you know, uh, public to, you know, um, press reporting to studies, research studies, and to social media. So, um, social media can be an excellent tool of, um, gathering information and intelligence in, you know, it shouldn't necessarily be a surprise why, you know, we have political leaders all over the world that use, you know, things like Twitter and Facebook, um, their, their websites and things like that to disseminate just a vast amount of information about themselves, their whereabouts, um, and other things that, that we would care about, um, you know, as an intelligence service. So, um, Sarah, you know, as a, as a targeter, um, and someone who I worked with, um, back in the, back in the old place, um, Mm. you know, as you're looking for, you know, information about, about people and places and things, social media is a great resource for that. And then, you know, in my life, um, as a, uh, disinformation investigator, um, and manager of, of disinformation investigative teams in the private sector, um, you know, disinformation largely exists, um, on social media and online in general. So, um, I do spend my days, um, looking, you know, spending, uh, most of my time on social media platforms, both sort of the mainstream and the fringe, um, because it's where a lot of disinformation campaigns are taking place. Awesome. So now, is it effective in use of like, let's say I'm bad guy um, that you're wanting to follow and mm-hmm. I'm very, very secretive. I change out my phone all the time and, you know, I'm pretty hard to trace, but my aunt is having a wedding in the next city over and I'm dumb enough to say, Oh, I'll be there. Is that the kind of thing that is sometimes really useful is people kind of having a blind side when it comes to friends and family and things of that sort? Yeah, definitely. I mean, even, you know, even the bad, the bad folks of the world, um, they're not 
they're not always evil geniuses, right? They're not always covering their tracks. <laughs> they might change out their SIM cards and things like that. But, um, you know, they're putting personal content online as well. Um, and it's up to, to folks like us to put together those dots. Um, and, you know, there's also, uh, there's also the belief that there are some um, platforms or methods of communication that are, you know, 100% impenetrable, you know, um, posting your personal life on Facebook, for example, is not one of those uh, impenetrable um, platforms. Can we talk about shadow profiles too? Or, or have you looked into that at all? Because there is a concern. I don't know if it's conspiracy theory or not, but it actually makes logical sense that Facebook is building a shadow profile. For example, my wife does not have a Facebook account, but she shows up in pictures with me on Facebook she shows up in events, different places. Other people I know may reference her. So theoretically, you have enough information that you have, in essence, a profile of who she is, where she is, where she lives, and a lot of things. Is that something that is true? I mean, to the extent that other people are putting information about her online and including pictures, you know, for, for somebody who's in the business of, you know, hunting baddies via social media um, you would absolutely look at a person's network and see if they're putting any content about, you know, your, your actual, um, target of investigation on social media. So I don't know about, I don't know enough about sort of the idea of official shadow profiles, but, you know, you should absolutely be concerned about what your close network is putting about you, um, on social media, even if you're not on social media yourself. Okay, and I'm going to pivot more. And this is an admission that I guess I'm kind of dumb about some of the conspiracy stuff out there. I was doing a live stream, and somebody put a word inside of the comments asking a question, and I thought it was Quanon. Because I didn't know this. Yes. <laughs> I had never seen the term before, and they were saying something about Quanon. And I'm just like, I, I don't know what that is. And it, it was kind of off left field. But, yeah, it turns out, I guess it's QAnon, and I guess that's a conspiracy theory, uh, I don't know, with chemtrails and other stuff, uh, 5G. I'm learning more because I'm talking to people. Do you worry about, and I'm thinking maybe my feet is clean because I was pretty oblivious, but do you worry about the algorithms and self-radicalization of people? Like, every time we click on something, we're telling Facebook or whomever, ooh, we like that. And so they give us a little bit more like that and maybe push down something that we're not as into. What are your thoughts? Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, the algorithms that social media platforms um, have used, and I'm speaking broad brush, but it's pretty consistent with all of the mainstream social media platforms. Um, they have, um, you know, research has been done in the last couple of years and it, you know, proves that um, most social media companies have increasingly their algorithms have pointed people to increasingly sort of fringe um, ideas. And so when you're on something like Facebook, for example, or YouTube, and exactly as you said, you click on something, the algorithm sort of readjusts, and it starts pointing you to the next thing that's kind of like that. And it's kind of like that. Uh, and it sort of leads you down this trail of um, increasingly extreme ideas. So we know that, for example, with YouTube, um, there was some some great um, investigative reporting that was done in the last, I want to say year or two, it's all blending together, but <laughs> a year or two, 
um, that showed that the algorithm was directing people towards white supremacist content um, and neo-Nazi uh, channels. And with Facebook, um, QAnon, um, to this day, you know, there's there's uh, reporting suggesting Facebook is about to take down um, a, a lot of QAnon content. But at this point still, if you are liking or are part of groups or following pages that have anything to do really with um, sort of fringe ideas, Facebook will recommend to you that you join QAnon groups. Um, it's still happening. So um, it's a huge danger and it has, you know, led to exactly as you said, that sort of self-radicalization. And then there's sort of this other, this other thing that's happening at the same time where because of the global pandemic, um, we're sort of facing right now um, what us disinformation researchers are calling an infodemic, which is just massive amounts of, of disinformation and misinformation circulating at a scale and scope we've never seen before. Um, and you have sort of globally this amped up sense of fear and panic over what's happening. Um, and because of that, because our brains are just essentially under constant amounts of stress and fear and panic, people who are otherwise normally in sort of moderate camps um, ideologically and, and would never necessarily otherwise you know, trend toward the conspiracy, um, people are increasingly attracted to these very fringe ideas and fringe groups just looking for answers to make sense of of this new world that we are essentially are, are finding ourselves in. So the algorithms aren't helping that either. Um, if you start sort of delving into fringe fringe groups about health, for example, again, it'll, you know, on Facebook, for example, it'll start suggesting that you follow QAnon groups. Is that something that, because I think you tracked and worked ISIS, is that something that they use to get recruitment? I mean, to give a, a another example going a different direction that maybe uh, universally American-wise people can relate to. Like using the, the algorithms to their advantage? Yes. I mean, there's a similar strategy behind all of this and what multiple groups have used that then sort of feeds the algorithms, which is flooding the information system. So they're not putting out one video, you know, ISIS isn't putting out one video, they're not putting out one post, they're putting out mass amounts of information, they're putting out articles, they're doing videos, they're doing, you know, all of these posts, um, they're using hashtags, all of these things to help spread content, um, and, and flood the information systems. And because of that, the algorithms um, end up you know, directing um, people toward that content that's that's gaining attention, right? Um, you know, I think ISIS is one of those examples and increasingly coronavirus is one of those examples where we have actually seen social media platforms take serious action um, on stopping that content from, from being on their platforms. It's very hard on mainstream social media platforms at this point um, to find sort of over, you know, outright overt um, sort of ISIS recruiting kinds of content. Um, and that's because the social media platforms and the search engines um, have really stepped up in recent years to block that content. It shows you that they can, um, is sort of the, the bigger mm -hmm. point. They can take action um, when they determine that, you know, particular content is harmful. And they're increasingly doing that on, you know, coronavirus kinds of conspiracies um, and false information, because again, there's been sort of 
a recognition across most of the mainstream social media platforms that false information uh, about a global pandemic actually can lead to things like loss of life and real world harm. And so it's worth taking action uh, has been their calculation. So they can act and they can, you know, adjust things on their platforms so that that content isn't spreading and trending. What are your thoughts, though, about them being a publisher versus a platform? Yeah, I mean, it's it's such a complicated issue. Um, I um, There are a couple of things. So from my perspective, social media companies should not be the ones determining, you know, for-profit social media companies should not be determining um, what constitutes free speech um, and what constitutes sort of real-world harm. Um you're going to get very different results from for-profit companies when they're the arbiters of those things. Mm. Um, My take, I tend to land on the side of people have a right to know where their information is coming from. Yes, there's Mm. absolutely a piece of this to talk about where, you know, um, if you're from a community that's typically targeted, if you're from a marginalized community Mm. and you face harassment and things like that, yes, privacy is extremely important. Um, you know, protecting human rights, protecting people from being doxxed, all of that is, mm-hmm. is very important. The other side of that, though, is that people do have a right to know where their information is coming from. And so mm-hmm. when I look at solutions that social media companies should employ, it's things like, you know, if there are if there are digital ads targeting people, users on the platform need to know who's paying for that ad. Um who is paying to put that content in front of the person so that they can look to see, okay, you know, is it an advertising company? Is it a political campaign? Is it a, um, is it a PAC? Is it a foreign government? What is it? Um, And then they can make the determination whether they think that content then is accurate based on who's putting it out. So Um, more transparency, not necessarily saying that they can't say things, but who they are. So go ahead, put it out there, but then say By the way, this is who said it, whatever it is. Yes. So, you know, for example, on Facebook, if you join a group, um, you might have to take a fair number of investigative steps to to figure out whether that group is running multiple other groups or pages Mm. in which they're, you know, using those pages and groups to flood, again, information and content and a particular narrative. You shouldn't, you know, an average Facebook user, an average social media user shouldn't have to learn how to be a disinformation investigator to find out where their information is coming from and what else that company or group might be doing. So Um, the 5G group that also is run by somebody who has, let's say, the Flat Earth Society group and the uh, Monsanto is bad group, people could look and go, those groups don't seem to have anything to do with that, or that's kind of an odd Mm -hmm. connection. That's an interesting point. Is that essentially what you're saying? Yeah, it's it's that. And, you know, you have so many people who are um, so many different kinds of people and organizations, governments and groups that are using information um, in a very sort of weaponized way these days. They're looking to influence people. They're looking to change people's behavior. And so, you know, as a result, people need to understand how they're being targeted, essentially. Um, you know, one um some of my work appeared in the Washington Post um, earlier this week, I think. It was about an investigation um, that I did with my, through my company. My company did. And um, it was about how... The Aletheia Group, right? Yes, Aletheia Group. 
Um, okay. So we uncovered this network of, of websites that were being run by um, a an individual who specializes sort of in get-rich-quick schemes. And they were using these websites. Um, they ran about 178 um, as far as we could track. And they were using these websites to gather vast amounts of data on website visitors. And they were building complete data profiles on the visitors to their websites. And then they were selling those data profiles to your email, your credit card information. All of these things were being turned over to companies or potentially even political campaigns without your consent. You didn't, you know, there was a terms of service and a privacy agreement on the website, but most people aren't. Who reads those? Exactly. (laughs) Who reads those? So your data was getting turned over without your consent um, and your knowledge to these these companies, organizations, PACs, et cetera, so that this person could financially profit from you. And none of that was overtly stated. That was something that we as investigators of the Lethia Group had to uncover um, and pick through. You shouldn't have to do that just as somebody who casually browses websites, likes to check the news, likes to be on social media. That should not be your responsibility. That's awesome. Now let's pivot and talk a little bit about the book because um, mm-hmm. we're leading into it. We've got an election coming up. I thought that the election of 2016 had definite parallels to the election of 1800. Do you feel like same basic situation now that we're, you know, history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you know, so the way that I think about it is that, you know, we traditionally have thought about um, using false information about one's political opponent as sort of just political mudslinging. Oh, it's just mm-hmm. politicians being politicians, all politicians lie, that sort of thing. At least that's sort of the the framing of politics that I grew up with um, in my house. But what we're seeing now is a bit different. So, you know, the founders, um, as they were forming this country, they used information like a weapon against Britain. They used it against each other um, to gain political office and and all of that. Um, They started their own presses, they funded their own presses and things like that to be able to put out content. They they did not have social media. Um, They did not have technology. They had, Mm -hmm. you know, leaflets and things like that where they were spreading, you know, false information about each other and things were traveling via sort of word of mouth. Otherwise, it's different today. Um, And I don't think that we can talk about what we're seeing now today as politics as usual, because what we're seeing um, in 2000, what we saw in 2016 and and now in the upcoming election is um, using technology to spread conspiracies, um, false information, um, like we've never seen before against political opponents. Um, and as a result, you know, I think we're seeing a lot of sort of s- scary things come out of that. One is we're opening up, up ourselves to, um, you know, foreign campaigns that use the same kind of information against us to try to, you know, influence the ultimate results of an election. Don't we do that already, though? I mean, that, that's one thing I find funny. I mean, we muck around ourselves. We spread disinformation in countries. We'll just call them frenemies. <laughs> and, and, and do manipulate. I mean, none of this is necessarily completely new. They're just probably better at it. Would you agree? I don't know if they're better at it. Um, none of it's new. I mean, you know, as the United States... Is that something that we want to accept against us, though? Like, are, is the alternative mm. just to say, well, fine, we're open. Feel free to mess with us. Um, that's sort of where I come down on it. Um, but but the issue of, you know, using influence to 
you know, covert influence to um, affect the results of, you know, a policy priority or, you know, an election or a political situation. No, it's not new. Okay, and that actually made me think of something you had mentioned um, Russia, or sorry, USSR at the time, Soviet Union, spreading uh, AIDS um, propaganda here to affect us. I've actually had on Jack Barsky, who was a KGB agent living in the United States for 16 years. He's, I guess, the longest before he was uncovered. Ironically, the way he got out of the KGB is he told him he had AIDS. And um, he lived for like um, six years or something, you know, out. So he had already quit on his own. But I guess while they were spreading disinformation, they were terrified of AIDS themselves. I don't know if you mm-hmm. knew all that. And as soon as he said, I have AIDS, they said, yeah, we'll make sure your wife gets your uh, savings. Wow. Yeah, no, I didn't know about that particular, um, about about his story. Um but yeah, I mean, one of the one of the reasons or motivations for um, getting USSR to to stop um, what was Operation Infection, their um, disinformation campaign about us creating uh, AIDS in a military lab at Fort Detrick, um, was that they were experiencing a significant outbreak themselves uh, in their own in their own territory, and so um, they were looking for scientific assistance to help you know, stem the, the, um, the crisis. Uh, so we used that as leverage. Now, didn't China kind of try that too? Did they With coronavirus? Not, yeah. And said that, um, it was the U S military. I'm going to assume it was Dietrich as well in their, you know, the way they're peddling it and said that we actually created it and, and put it over there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, both China and Russia, um, since the start of the pandemic, have pushed the conspiracy theory that, that we created coronavirus. Um, they've done it overtly with their own, um, you know, diplomatic officials or political officials. They've done it um, with their own state-run media outlets um, and also um, used social media as well to push that that idea that we created it. Now, are you familiar with the uh, book um, by Ryan Holiday, Trust Me, I'm Lying? I haven't read it. Nope. Okay. I, I just thought, and you can confirm this methodology. I thought it was fascinating and it's uh, trust me, I'm lying confessions of a media manipulator. And he wrote it in like 2011, 2012. And he talked about how he could push a story through the media. And the methodology was you take, let's say a reporter at the Washington post. Well, they have friends who they probably went to school with or whatever. And they follow them on Twitter And they may write for smaller publications. So you then go track that smaller publication and see who they follow, or it might be small enough there. You inject a story into that smaller publication, and that story could be a complete lie. And then it gets picked up by the next reporter down the line, you know, their friend or whatever. They're like, Mm -hmm. what? Did you do this? And then when that person retweets it, now some authority has been lent because we've got a, quote, verification. And then the story spreads completely wide. Mm-hmm. Is that something that you see um, both in your career and with the Aletheia group? Yeah, absolutely. So that's a very tried and true tactic um, that countries like back then, the Soviet Union, used to use as well. So one of the things that they would do during the Cold War is they would um, fund and support um 
developing media outlets in particularly developing countries to get content placed, non-English language content, and then allow, you know, have uh, that content be published in um, that particular outlet and then hope that it would get picked up by a slightly larger outlet, maybe in a different country, in a different language, that then would get picked up by another one and eventually make it into English language press. So that was um, a key tactic that they used um, on all of their campaigns, but in particular, um, that is how Operation Infection um, really started to take off was they were able to seed this story in a in a uh, developing media outlet out of India. Um, but that's something that they still use to this day and other countries use to this day. And it's also a service that you can, for example, um, buy on the dark web. Um, please don't go there. Please don't look. Um, <laughs> but I've never go. been, actually. But... Yeah, um, avoid it if you can. Um, but you can go onto the dark web and you can find um, listings for um, or advertisements for people who sell essentially, you know, media access. And it's essentially this tactic of trying to plant stories into smaller um, outlets where maybe they don't have, you know, they're not doing the kind of due diligence that, um, you know, an established outlet with resources would do. And then, you know, essentially helping guide it through um, social media uh, you know, getting it to spread uh, with the intention of it landing in a large, um, either, you know, being tweeted or shared by, you know, somebody with um, significant reputation and credibility uh, or even picked up by a larger outlet. And I think that happened recent or I don't know, a year plus, I'll just say recently, but um, with the Covington kids, if I recall that story got amplified out of Brazil with a, a, a bot Twitter account or something where they misrepresented what happened. And then by the time, you know, like a longer video came out, it had been around the world. Did you ever look into that or, or follow the path of that one? Not that particular case, but it, it I mean, it happens. It, I mean, it literally happens every day to a degree. So one of the tactics that, that people pushing false information use is that they'll, um, they'll post on social media, a link to, you know, a legit, news article from a legit respected news organization and in the you know in the post they write up something that is false knowing that in the united states the vast majority and research has proven time and time again the pew research center has has done um, a lot of work on this the vast majority of americans don't actually click on articles they read the headlines and they share and so um one tactic that that um disinformation actors use is They'll mischaracterize in the text of their post or, you know, make an alternative claim to what's actually in the news article itself, knowing that that will spread on its own. Nobody will go to verify until the thing has already gone viral. Um, and by then it's already too late. So that happens on, you know, a daily, um, hourly, minute to minute basis even. Um, and is why, you know, um, you know, sort of shameless plug for my book, like some of the tools and tactics Please. that I talk about. <laughs> some of the tools and, and tactics that I talk about to help spot false information, go back to the basics of things like click on the article, don't share based on a headline um, or based on sort of uh, a, a social media users characterization of what's in the article. What I've got to push on that too, a little bit because the freaking press is doing it themselves and it drives me crazy because the headlines don't match the article. And mm -hmm. I don't know if you've ever read, um, heard of Bedinger's Law. Mm -hmm. And that's essentially any headline that ends with a question mark, the answer is no. 
and it and if you really look at it 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 is true anytime you see something like did such and such really do this and then you read down and it's like fifth or sixth paragraph because you barely get people to read articles at all and then getting beyond to paragraph one i mean come on that's some hard digging that's like major research. So in the fifth or sixth paragraph, you'll find out that, no, they completely buried the lead or they just lied. And doesn't that lend to this whole problem? Oh, absolutely. And I share your frustration. Um, so there's there's a whole sort of other conversation we could absolutely have about the media's responsibility to help fix some of these things that we're experiencing. But the fact of the matter is, you know, clickbait content um is is yes, clickbait uh, and um and so i you know i think um it it absolutely goes back to the point of even you know even if all you're seeing is you know uh social media posts where they're not putting any sort of they're not characterizing it themselves all they've done is just completely you know shared the article from the site and that's it there's nothing else in the post you still need to click on the article to read uh, past the headline because, um, as exactly as you said, uh, it so often doesn't match what's in the article. And yeah, and let's go ahead and pivot into your book because I'd like to help you sell some copies. I think it's really <laughs> cool. What yeah. inspired you to take this direction, which I think is great because obviously everybody's doing their memoirs and you're a fascinating too. I mean, you're a world traveler doing all kinds of crazy things. Um, what made you say, I'm going to write this book and I'm going to target it at young adults? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, so I've actually never been interested in, in writing memoir myself. Um, I, uh, I fairly uncomfortable talking about myself. So, you know, that's sort of problem number one. Um, but, um, so a couple of, a couple of motivations for this book. So, um, when I left the CIA in mid 2017, um, it was. Why didn't you uh, retire? Why didn't you uh, see and retire? Oh gosh, I had another twenty some odd years to go before I would oh, be okay. eligible uh, for okay. retirement. Yeah, okay. so um, so I left. I uh, resigned and um, joined the private sector, um, and that's you know that's a whole other conversation about reasons for that, but. Um, so I left a couple of months after um, the declassified version of the intelligence community assessment on Russian interference in the election came out. And um, I, I also at the same time sort of re reluctantly joined social media myself um, and started writing some articles um, because I sort of felt like um, there were some, some very large conversations <laughs> happening at the national level about um, intelligence, how it works, what is, you know, election interference, is it new, all of these things. And I felt like, you know, I could provide some, some helpful context from my experience. Um, but the more I sort of became public, um, the more people started reaching out to me and saying, well, I just want to know, how do I, you know, how do I figure out what is fact and fiction from my social media pages? Who do I go to for sources of information? Who do you read? What, you know, what reporters do you follow? Um, do you have any tips and tricks? I just want to know, like, please, someone give me some guidance. Um, I just want to <laughs> know how to, how to find good sources of information. Um, so I realized there was probably a book in it. Um, 
based on my experiences as an, as an Intel analyst um, and doing exactly those things every single day. Um, and, and then um, I did it for, for the young adult audience um, in part because I know, you know, I was a reluctant reader as a child um, and I know, you know, then I found sort of like the book uh, that turned me into a reader and I knew how powerful it could be to have. What was know, that? A book. So um, there were, there were actually more than one. Um, one I'm actually hunt. I'm working with a librarian right now to hunt down the title um, because it was essentially a book that contained a personal story that was very similar to something that I experienced as a child. And this was the first time that mm. I sort of saw myself represented in a story. Um, but then I, I, I don't remember the title. This was 30 years ago. Um, <laughs> and so I'm actually working with a librarian right now to hunt it down. Um, but there were some other books as well that were very, um, that were very important to me as a kid. I was, a I was very into horses. So the black stallion, um, mm. was something that I, I turned to every single night before I went to bed. Um, I loved adventure stories. So books like hatchet, um, were ones that I kept coming back to. Um, but so I knew, you know, how, how much a story written for, for a young adult audience could affect a person's life, um, a, a young reader's life. And so that was part of the motivation. But then um, I also, you know, this generation is the most online generation we've ever had. These kids are literally on social media from the moment they're born when their parents are taking pictures of their delivery. Um, and they grow up with electronics in their hands. And, you know, it just, it's very different from, from my generation where, you know, internet was becoming a thing in people's households. Um, and so they're sort of thrown into these information spaces that their parents don't necessarily understand. Um, and they don't understand because no one's sort of been there to sort of guide them through, okay, what is, you know, is discord safe? Is this, you know, is this forum safe? What is 4chan? You know, all of these things. So they're just sort of thrown into it. Um, and, um, and it puts them in a very sort of dangerous and risky position to sort of figure out on their own. And so I wanted to write it for YA um, because they need the tools and tactics um, to, to know how to be sort of responsible information consumers that hopefully they'll carry with them the rest of their lives. Is it also because they're more easily influenced? And I mean that in a good way, but people's views I, I never understood why they cared so much about the 18 to 30, whatever age group for advertising. But finally, somewhere I read it, and it was essentially that when a person lands on a brand in their teens to 20s, they tend to be that for life. So mm -hmm. if they got if they're a Ford person, then they're a Ford person for life. And that's why they target so hard with the advertising. Is that kind of what you're shooting for, too, is to to catch them young to say, OK, a lot of what you see is, excuse my language, bullshit. Mm -hmm. And here's how you can dig it out. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a great way of framing it. Um, that's absolutely what I'm I'm hoping to accomplish. This is also the generation that um, really fell in love with, with social media influencers. And it's not something I understand Um in, in my age, I, you know, I have um, very blessed to have a large uh, number of nieces and nephews in my family who I love and adore. They are obsessed with social media influencers. They follow YouTubers, they follow Instagram um, influencers, they follow Snapchat influencers, TikTok. Um, and it matters what those influencers say in their minds. It matters. Um, so they're very persuadable by these people that, that have... Um, 
a, a level of authority in their lives. And we're seeing now um, some of the going back to QAnon um, and the origins of QAnon. Even we're seeing some of those those conspiracies be recycled again. Um, and um, the younger generation of social media influencers are picking up on those conspiracies and putting them out on their channels to their largely teenage audiences, um, teenage or, or even younger in some cases. And so um, they absolutely need the the tools to be able to do exactly what you said, which is see that this is bullshit. Well, perfect. Now the book, which we haven't really said the title enough, but the book is True or False, A CIA Analyst's Guide to Spotting Fake News. Mm-hmm. And most importantly, it's an audio. And people will know that I harp on that all the time, but I, I have trouble finding time to physically read a book. I'm, I have mm. to be doing something else with research or whatever. So that to me makes it more accessible to a lot of people, you know, dyslexics, a, a mm-hmm. lot of people get, will still benefit highly from that. And in today's world, well, we're so used to seeing short things on social media. A lot of us are losing practice on being able to sit down and actually read full pages of long prose. So thank mm-hmm. you very much for doing that. And people can find out more about you at cindyotis.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, I'm so glad that, that you raised sort of the accessibility of the book because um, that was a, a very intentional um, effort on my part and the part of um, Macmillan, my publisher. Um, I'm a disabled woman myself and, um, and I'm an active participant in the disability rights community. And so being able to create a book that is accessible to a wide range of readers um, to all readers, frankly, was really important. So everything from the typeface that we used, the color choices, um, mm. including audio descriptions in images and things like that, um, all of that was very um, important to me to get right. That's awesome. And I, I really do appreciate that. I, I feel like it's dumb for people not to do it, actually, <laughs> because you're putting you're leaving money on the table. So you could do mm-hmm. it for the right reasons or you could do it for the money, but it's a win. Either way, do it. <laughs> So, Cindy, this has been a delight. I have a live stream that I will do. Um, I do it weekly, and I bring on different guests. Like, in a couple weeks, I actually have Sarah Carlson and uh, Tracy Walder both coming on. And what it is is that the audience can ask questions directly of you. You can bring your audience if you don't necessarily have your own uh, podcast or YouTube show or what have you. And answer questions. I bring my audience and everybody can just um, have a good time. If I reach out in the future, would you be interested in doing that? Yeah, definitely. Let me know. Okay. Well, wonderful. And until then, Cindy, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much, Eric. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing for free. And I mean for free. It is always free. There's no billing, anything else. You can subscribe in your player of choice, which is probably right in your hands. Or you can go to unstructuredpod.com. And there are plenty of links there. Thank you so much. And in the spirit of sharing, here's a couple more shows you may want to check out. Laughter, tears, celebrities, newsmakers, anecdotes, and recipes. Wait, I was wrong. They don't do recipes you can't hear. 
food. Join host Randall Kenneth Jones, a man who is not the original cowboy in the village people, and announcer Susan C. Bennett, a woman who is the original voice of Siri, every week on Jones.show, a podcast so accessible, its name is a web address, www.jones.show. Hi, this is Kara Mayer Robinson, and I host Really Famous. I interview A-list celebrities. I dive deep because I used to be a therapist. This is what Tim Gunn said. I just have this antipathy for the judges. I can't stand being in the same room with them. Tim Daly. If you're not working in L.A. and you're an actor, there's no worse place to be. Michael Rappaport. I changed schools every year from the third grade to the twelfth grade. Disruptive was my thing. Chaz Palminteri. I knew something was going on. I said, I got to talk to somebody. It's Really Famous. It's like eavesdropping on a therapy session. 